This episode is brought to you by Vobin from Carta. Vobin from Carta is the easiest way to launch and run your venture investing. They offer SPVs and fund vehicles for GPs at all stages of the journey, from your first syndicate to operating a multi-million dollar venture fund. If you're interested in investing in startups, stick around after the episode where I chat with Gabriel Shin from the Vobin from Carta team, who shares his perspective and tips about how to start investing and how Vobin from Carta can get you set up. The link to Vobin from Carta's website is in the show notes. Vault itself is a multimedia format. Uh, we support pictures, video, text. Uh, we have artists who put their stems in there so that their fans can download and play with the stems. Um, we've had artists use it for ticketing. So you buy a new artist by the EP, and then as part of that, there's a QR code that gets into their first concert. Um, that's pretty cool. Um, we've seen and we've started to do a lot more of live recordings. And so the artist can actually sell it at their event. And 24 or 48 hours later, the fans get notification to say, hey, your live recording is available. So that concert that you went to last night, suddenly you can listen to it again. You can listen forever. That's pretty cool. Hey, I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and this is a Consumer VC podcast where we discuss the intersection of venture capital and consumer innovation. If you're enjoying the show, also subscribe to my newsletter at theconsumervc.com where you'll receive new episodes straight to your inbox and a weekly recap of all the consumer deals that are happening. Please note that all content and episodes are for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not investment advice. This episode is brought to you by Vobin from Carta. Vobin from Carta is the easiest way to launch and run your venture investing. They offer SPVs and fund vehicles for GPs at all stages of the journey, from your first syndicate to operating a multi-million dollar venture fund. If you're interested in investing in startups, stick around after the episode where I chat with Gabriel Shin from the Vobin from Carta team, who shares his perspective and tips about how to start investing and how Vobin from Carta can get you set up. The link to Vobin from Carta's website is in the show notes. Thank you to my brother, Rob Gelb, for the introduction to our guest today, Nigel Eccles, the co-founder and CEO of Vault. Vault is introducing digital music collectibles as a new format for collecting exclusive, authenticated, and limited run collectibles from your favorite artists. This episode really brought me back. I actually worked in the music for the first part of my career, and I'm an avid music listener. So I love thinking about what the future of the music industry is gonna look like. Previously, Nigel also co-founded and was the CEO of FanDuel, which FanDuel is the number one sports book in the US and a leading daily fantasy sports platform. We discuss why he left FanDuel, how we got into crypto, how artists are currently monetizing their music and the void that Volt fills, the type of artists they're looking to attract, how he thinks about fandom in the digital age. I love this one. Without further ado, here's Nigel. Nigel, thank you so much for taking the time, for being here. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. It's good to be on the show. Yeah, thank you. Really, really appreciate it. Um, so wanted to start from, well, I guess kind of the beginning a little bit on the Vault side. What was mm -hmm. your introduction to crypto web three and and this world? Yeah, so probably my first introduction was 2017, if you remember the 2017 bull run. Um and like I I like building consumer products. Um, and uh, when I saw crypto and particularly the promise of Ethereum, I was like, wow, this is really cool. And 
I sort of thought, wow, is this a cool technology that I could build some cool products on? And when I looked at it in 2017, it, like it wasn't, you know, I remember buying Ethereum then and I was like, oh, this is cool. And I remember looking at all the other tokens and going, hmm, not really sure what that does. Don't really know what that does. You know, it sort of go down the... Climate. So the actual like use cases, you, yeah, were, they were, you like, weren't entirely non, sure. They were non-existent, yeah, right? Um, there was a lot of promise. And I kind of got disillusioned of them. It wasn't even anything to do with the price because I didn't really understand why they were going up. Um and, and, and there wasn't really any reason why they were going up. It was just like speculation. And then it didn't really surprise me it crashed in 2018 because I just didn't, I, like I love the vision. I just didn't think it was being delivered. And then in 2020 again, came around, I actually, some of the first ones I got back into was like Nifty Gateway and Topshot uh, because I saw that those were use cases, right? Like, um, you know, the art market, is a real use case, you know, that you can actually show ownership of digital assets. That's really interesting. Um, and I felt that both of those platforms had done a nice onboarding for kind of normals, right? The people that didn't understand MetaMask, Wallace, and seed phrases and all these complicated things. And so I actually think they should get a lot of credit for bringing people into the space because um, they did. They actually made this smooth onboarding flow. Um, and I think they did a nice job and that's kind of when I got back into it and then really started to get deeper into the technology. I also, I would say uh, getting into Solana pretty early was something I was like, wow, now we can build something that is consumer, like consumer ready because, you know, with Ethereum, it's fantastic. And I, like, I love the Ethereum ecosystem, but I can't build a consumer product that has like five to ten dollar transaction fees. I need something that's got transaction fees in the sand. So those was, that was kind of my first in twenty seventeen, and then laterally in sort of twenty twenty, um, sort of late, latter part of twenty twenty. So some of like the reasons, I guess, what got you into it? Um, you were interested in the technology from the beginning. You didn't quite the use cases just weren't there. But you like the you like the idea of what the use cases maybe could be, um, and also just in terms of price and the transaction fee and uh, and gas prices going down and are considerably cheaper on a Solana versus um, Ethereum. Um, that kind of then you started to realize, okay, I could actually build a true kind of consumer platform um, using this technology. That's right. Yeah, I I, I just. I felt like Solana was a, an L1 that was built for consumer. Like, I still think Ethereum is really interesting, but it's mostly financial products. Um, and I'm kind of not that interested in those. Like, I think they're, in, they're interesting, but it's not what I want to build. Um, and so that's why Solana to me was like, oh, this is an L1 that is built for consumers. Um, we can actually build consumer products on top of this. And is this is this part of the, when you were thinking about all this, was this a during around the time that you were deciding to leave FanDuel? Oh, no. Well, 2017, I guess, was one of the last years I was at FanDuel. So yeah, it certainly was. At that point, I was sort of thinking about what I might do next. Um, so I did look at it then, absolutely. Okay, got it, got it. Um, and so... All this, I guess, when you're thinking about crypto and, and thinking about using um, uh, Solana, uh, this came out eventually as Volt. What were, why did you decide to focus on music? Why, um, and, and what were kind of the underpinnings that eventually became Volt? Because we thought ownership was really interesting. We thought ownership of digital assets was really interesting. We kind of thought it was weird 
with the with these digital assets, you had ownership but not exclusivity. And by that I mean a physical asset. If I have a Lamborghini, for example, in the driveway, I don't. I have a Ford Explorer. Um, but I, I, I not only own it, I can prove I can own it. I'm also the only person who can drive it. Well, my, me and my family are the only ones. So I have both ownership and exclusivity. Um, whereas with NFTs, um, you have ownership. Like I, I own this CryptoPunk um, or my instance, I own a Solana MBS. And I can prove that I can own it. But uh, it's not really exclusive. Like everyone can pretty much have the same experience with me with that NFT. They can right click and save it. They just don't have, you know, the financial return of owning it. Um, I thought that was actually quite weird uh, to use the music analogy again. If I and, and it was interesting in music because there's this format that we talk about as music NFTs, and there's sort of thousands of these, but I don't have to play, buy them to play them. Um, but in the music world, in the analog world, that's that's not true. You have to go and physically buy the album, you know. Um, and so we sort of felt the right format for music would have exclusivity, you know, would have, like, if you love this music, you want to support this artist, you actually could buy it and only then can you play the music. And so when we started exploring NFTs and looking at that technology, we very quickly kind of sort of fell on the music industry as the industry that could most benefit from uh, really an evolution of the NFT technology. Yeah, I think when I think about, you know, kind of like the CD days, like I, that's actually my background. I came from the music. I was, I was in the music business for about four years. When I think about the CD days, obviously you do have that, that ownership, you, you have exclusivity, um, you know, you, you need to put the CD into a CD player in order to play it. Um, uh, and so you actually need that physical, but you know, obviously these were mass produced, right. In terms of scarcity, it wasn't quite, it wasn't quite, that um where of and i think that maybe and i'd love to hear your thoughts about this but part of when we think about scarcity in the digital space for artists i would imagine what's kind of tricky is part of the allure is that there is like a certain limited quantity which you actually don't you don't actually have that when it comes to cds yeah and i think i think there's kind of pulls in two direction um i think there's a pull to sort of ubiquity you know so for music to be everywhere and so it doesn't help an artist like miley cyrus wasn't going to drop her music in a format that only a couple of thousand people could access she wants to get as wide as reach as possible and that's and and and, and streaming is the best model for that but at the same time there are also super fans who not only want that song and know that song and know the album, but actually want to collect that album. I would love the bonus tracks and the additional content. And the problem with streaming is that those fans are, to use an industry term, under-monetized. To use a fan term, give me something to buy, right? Like, give me, like, I love this artist. I, I would buy everything that they produce because I love them. I love, love everything they do. And today... Uh, like Mario Sai is a good example. I go to her merch page and I can buy a beach towel, a tanning set, and a puzzle along with her music in what I would call antique or vintage forms, which is vinyl and CD. So there's something wrong there that she's selling beach towels. And the thing is, the dominant format to listen to music is, is on the phone. So why don't why doesn't she have a format that she can drop her album with bonus tracks that are only available in this format that only her top fans care about? 
that they can buy. And that's what we're trying to create, that format that they can that she can sell that to her top fans. Yeah, I mean that that um I think that's interesting just as a music fan. Like one of my favorite bands is this band called Thrice, uh, that I grew up with. And, you know, when I, you know, and I'm I'm like a maybe an odd music music listener. I'll listen to one track three hundred times um if I really like it. Um and just over and over and over and over and over again until like the like the um uh for, for a long time and i like to actually experience that track maybe in different formats so i might prefer like the live format of that track in different shows or you know how it's done acoustically and um and thrice did like i feel like they're like a, a few a, a few of their albums all um on uh spotify that uh, not exclusively to spotify but like in a format of like them recording it live in studio and like that would have been you know so like i would gladly pay for that, you know, separately, um, and have it, and have it be, be more scarce. And I, I guess, um, and, and same with like another, another one, one of my, like in a different example, um, another band that I, that, that I really enjoy Jimmy world who, um, they, they, they like post their demos of, um, or like have their, their demos on Spotify. And I, that's interesting to me because, um, you kind of see how the song was created a little bit, just a glimpse. Like they have like the background vocals, for example, on one song that I love in the verse on the demo, and they actually have it in the chorus, um, the the uh, the background vocals there. So you just kind of see how like the meat is made, so to speak. And I really like that. So and that's rare on Spotify because that sort of content does not perform well on Spotify. And, and in fact, talking to artists. Um, there's actually tons of content that top fans want, but actually they don't really put on Spotify. There's no workplace for it. And so one example is, is alternative versions of the same songs are developmental versions. The other category, huge category, which is live music. So very little live music on Spotify. It doesn't perform well. Artists aren't that keen about it being on there because sometimes it's not as, as well mastered. Um, but fans want it. And so that, again, is a category that we're trying to build with Vault, which is live music. So you go to a show, you listen to an artist you love, and you walk away and all you have is a ticket stop. Well, what if 48 hours later you get a notification saying you can buy the live recording for that, for that event that you were at, and you can keep it forever? That's a format that we, we're doing with Vault. So do you, do you feel like you are trying to establish new fan behaviors or do you think that you're trying to plug into and reward existing behaviors when it comes to fans? I think we're trying to, I'd say we're trying to make unmet demand for fans. Um, you know, that they already do want other ways of connecting with this artist. They do want additional music from this artist. Um, they also kind of want to support the artist directly that they're not really doing through Spotify. Um, so that, yeah, I, but in, and, but them getting something that's sort of tangible, and, and I mean tangible in the broadest sense, it's not actually physical, but it's something where they have ownership and they have something they actually can collect. Okay, got it. So I guess it is in some ways rewarding existing behaviors because these are collectibles. This is nothing new when it comes to collectibles, but in terms of something that's new is the fact that it's like a digital form when it comes to ownership and not the physical. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you a funny story actually about the format and how it's kind of all met demand. So a band that I love is a um, 80s rock band, uh, actually from Northern Ireland where I'm from, it's called Stiff Little Fingers. 
um, if you're familiar with them. So I actually bought a live recording of theirs in vinyl uh, about a month ago, and I've been listening to it ever since on Spotify <laughs> because it's just like I bought it. I want to listen to it, but I'm I'm rarely at home and sit in front of my record player, and so I still haven't opened it. But I've been playing it. You know, it's probably the thing I've listened to most of the last month. And so I actually was displaying the behavior that we're trying to create with Vault, which is if that was available in the Vault format, I would have bought it, I would own it, and I could play it on my phone, um, which is basically where I listen to all my music. But how how then do you feel about like quality? Because I think part of like the allure of like of like getting out the record player, like like I have a record player and kind of like listen to music, it's you know, it's, 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 uh, it, it's also like the quality of it being analog, not, uh, you know, non-compressed, um, for really kind of music geeks out there. Right. Um, do you feel, which of course, like non-compressed music is, you know, huge files. Um, and so how, how also do you think about format when it comes to, um, that side of it on like the listening experience? Yeah. I, so we certainly don't feel that we compete with vinyl. Uh, I, I personally love vinyl as a format. Um, I and I think it's great. I think it's fascinating. A lot of people collect vinyl, even though they don't have record players. Like, but you know, it's funny. I have a record player, but I'll admit I don't play all of the vinyl that I buy. Which I think where we fit in is for a lot of music that is never going to be in vinyl, um, or it's alternative. To, you know, like so, for example, singles, um, like. We have worked with a number of artists to create deluxe editions of singles that they've dropped. You're never going to make a vinyl of that. You'll never make a CD. But you might love that song, and you might love it so much that you want to see the, the deluxe edition that has an alternative version of it, has you know, a video of the artist the first time they ever listened to it. They might have the demo version. It might have the stems, things like that around it. Those are all things that, if I love that, I, I probably want that. Um, so it doesn't really compete with vinyl. Uh, I think vinyl's great for what it does. Uh, this is just like an alternative format that, that kind of reaches different needs. No, I, uh, I I I appreciate that example in terms of what like a deluxe edition could look like. Um, the different ways, like stems, for example, if you want to recreate it or just listen to like the vocals or the drums or 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 what have you, and maybe incorporate that into uh, maybe your own type of. Uh, 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 music um, endeavors, um, as long as it doesn't interfere, I guess, if you're trying to commercialize it with like copyright infringement and all that stuff like that. But, um, but that makes sense. That makes sense from um, from that. I know that Vault is still pretty young, but um, what do you think so far with like the artists that your partners that they are partners with that fans you feel like are actually craving? Um, when it comes to maybe exclusive type of content versus maybe some type of content that actually maybe isn't as resonating as much when it comes to scarcity? Probably the strongest pull is for sort of unreleased or pre-released music. So, and also music that might never be released. Um, So there's one artist we work with, Jordan Hart, who's a Canadian singer-songwriter. He's got an album coming up and he dropped, he took eight songs that are in development and and he put it put that created it as an EP on Vault and he basically and he priced it quite high he priced it at thirty dollars and he said these are eight songs I'm working on some of them are going to make the album some of them are not but I wanted to share them with some of my fans to like 
you know, get some feedback. That sold out immediately. Like they were, that was, did really well. And I think that was a really good example where people were like, you know, this is rare. I love this artist. I, I get early view. Um, that worked really well. Another format that worked really well is, is the live recordings. Um, so there's a band called Telescreens in New York we work with. Uh, they did a live recording at the better end. Um, and that it's the only place where you can get that recording. So that has worked really, really well. So live recordings or kind of exclusive or maybe like the full album, which well, I mean, all like maybe the songs that were written and then and, and then only, of course, a fraction of those goes on the actual record later. That's right. Or, or, or the other one that we've seen uh, is like alternative versions. Uh, I'll give you one example, which uh, and again, go back to Miley. Uh, there's an alternative version of Flowers um, actually in her album. It's actually on Spotify. I think it's wasted there because I think it'd be much better to be an exclusive only in our vinyl, only in our vault format because it's, I don't think it's a mainstream song like the main one is because it's stripped back. It doesn't have the instrumentals on it. That's where I think there's opportunity. How large do you think as an artist, when you're thinking about which artists make sense for, for vault on the platform, how large um, does an artist need to be in order to maybe start producing content that actually um, they can monetize on? Not that they're not monetizing on on streams, but it's just kind of a fraction. But um, maybe like scarce, um, scarce content. Like, how do you kind of measure measure fan bases? It's it's a good question for us. It's less about listenership and, and more about engagement. So we've had similar artists in terms of. Um, say Spotify listenership, but some have had like really strong socials with super high engagement. Uh, and so example with that would be like Fletcher who we've worked with, uh, who signed with Capital. She's incredible engagement. And so she, when she says to her fans, I've created something special, go here and buy it. We got, you know, like we got an amazing conversion on that. Um, so that's sort of more important than raw number of listeners. Um, because uh, there's certain artists you listen to, you hate to admit it, they're just fine, but they're not, you know, like they're just fine for a lot of people, right? But they don't necessarily, if they said, hey, I've got this special edition, people are going to like rave about it. And so, it, and in terms of size of artists, some of our artists are really small, like really small. Um, you know, they've only been professional artists, you know, They've been working at it for a year or two. They're not really monetizing on Spotify. In fact, we've had artists who are getting checks from us before they're getting checks from from Spotify, um, because we, we we can run small numbers. There's no unlike vinyl where you're gonna have like minimum, you know, runs here. Like we run with like fifty. You know, we'll, the, the the run will be fifty, and we'll price it at fifty dollars or hundred. Or sorry, to five to ten dollars. So it's not a lot of money. But that might be the first check you ever make as an artist. That's the idea. Is the idea that any artist, any band could um, could sign up for Vault no matter what the size is um, that they're that they're on, or are you kind of picking artists that maybe have you know kind of um, some of like the some of maybe these key metrics when it comes to engagement to actually use a platform? So right now we're actually steering much more towards smaller artists than than larger ones. Like the format would work great for larger artists, but it, um, it's more so that we can grow the community. Um, like we want to build inventory of lots of different artists. We want to grow our buying community. 
Um, and we don't necessarily want to just sort of go and reach to some sort of superstar and be known as a platform for that star. We want to actually build a sort of an indie community. So that's kind of where we're focused at right now. Um, we do look for artists that have good, strong socials. Um, so it's not really just where they are on Spotify, but more where are they on Instagram or TikTok or whatever their social of choice is. Because one of the challenges is, is if they don't have strong socials, how are they going to find their audience? Like, how are they going to find who their fans are? Um, and that's, that's so we basically create the format for them. We give them the link and they can then market that to their fans. And if they have no route to fans, it doesn't really work. That makes sense because these artists, I'd imagine, maybe became, you know, even if they're small artists, maybe they're they're, they're still artists that, that have a following. They came up through social media. So it's, um, hey, like this is, um, which of course, it's really challenging to monetize um, on social media, just like how it's um, really hard to monetize music. And so, and so Vault, this is like an interesting, you know, uh, proposition for for artists who did come up through social media of hey these are actually tangible ways you can actually monetize your music that's right and, and, and it's monetizing and like you know there's an interesting thing here which is you're monetizing your art it's not and it's kind of i always find it weird with with art being you or mu- art or mu- music which is art used to promote something else it's like it should be valuable in itself, right? It, it like you know it shouldn't be necessarily used to promote Pepsi. Like that's fine, okay? You know sponsorship is a thing, but like why can't we create a format that be, that the music is great? It's a great way to consume that music, and people want to pay for it. Like that's what we should be aspiring to. So we shouldn't be aspiring to the format of you know thirty seconds into a song you see like a Pepsi ad and, and then the song keeps playing. You don't think that's right? I just think ad supported anything is is the lowest like it's the lowest form. Like I get it, like but I just think that when you live in a world of abundance, like surely you want to create something that's so special that people will pay for and not just endure ads for. I you know, because when you think about in maybe the heyday of the music business, which back when CD sales were you know, heyday of the music business from like a monetization, you know, side and, um, uh, and everything, um, uh, from that, because I mean, you could say that this is the, the heyday for music just because the amount of scale you can get with, um, with some of these, these uh, digital channels, but the heyday of music, uh, of music, when it comes to actually, you know, when you actually sold CDs and that was the ultimate goal, um, what have you. Um, and you actually had, you know, a lot of, a lot more consumer spend. Um, I believe like, like, like the music business from like 2000 to now has dropped by, uh, has dropped considerably um, in, in terms of how large it is. Uh, um, so the music industry and, and over the, uh, the stat, uh, from a revenue perspective, inflation adjusted, North America recorded music is down about 40% over the last 20 years. And that, that's, that's a lot. But when you compare it with, say, the video game industry, they were both about a 20 to $24 billion industry 20 years ago. Video game industry is up 5x. Music's down 40%. That's stunning, in my view. That is stunning. I mean, where do you think that, I mean, you could say the video game industry, but where do you think when you dissect music fans and where that consumer spend went? When, where, where do you think it went? I I always find that's 
I always find the answer to that question, well, it's unknowable, but I also find that it's it's often not useful. Like I'll give you an example from when we were building FanDuel. Um, when people stop playing, you often want to like, why did they not stick around? And the answer you often get was, well, I was just busy. I was too busy, right? And and that useful that question is really useless. Or the answer is really useless because you're like, well, how do I make you less busy? I can't make this person less busy. But actually what the, the real answer is is, your thing isn't a priority, right? Your thing isn't valuable. And so the answer is, is boring. Like, make your product better, right? And so, you know, did you, like, let's send them more notifications is not the answer. The answer is to, like, make your product better. And so, you know, the answer I'd say to that question is, where did the money go? Well, it went to other things that were kind of higher priority or, you know, they valued more. And so the answer here is make the music more valuable, make more valuable to own. Um, and, and that's kind of the solution there as opposed to sort of trying to figure out where the money went. Like it might've, you know, for example, it might've went to gaming, you know, and why did it go to gaming? Well, because they valued it more. And those formats also did a better job of, of creating new formats that, you know, fans connected with and enticed them to spend their money on it. Well, and so what's also kind of a little bit on that point What's been a, what's been harder since this is a marketplace? And of course, there's always, I mean, well, well, in this case, obviously, you you need the artists first, but uh, uh, to connect their fans. But how how do you go about what's been harder, like convincing artists to come on the platform or their fans to actually um, purchase um, some of these exclusive offerings that that the art that the artists have? Um, I'd say our focus is very much been on the artist side. Um, Cause if we get the right artist with the right content, it sells. Uh, that's not been a challenge. Um, the hardest part is getting, uh, it, it's sort of, uh, sort of connecting with the artist and for them understanding what we're trying to do and for how them to sort of pitch it to their audience. Like what content should go in there and how they should sort of pitch it, you know, position it with their audience. That's the hard part. As long as we can do that, we know that it'll sell. Well, how um, has it been tricky at all, you know, with um, FTX and the countless number of kind of NFT scams that happened, you know, maybe like like the past couple of years and it just being uh, crypto and Web3, it just being, you know, quite difficult to actually onboard people that don't understand it. And of course, these are, you know, consumers of music. They might not know, you know, NFTs everything like that, just on the actual, on the actual, like, um, artist side, do you find that the artist pull it's, it's depending on the artist that, that, that artist is kind of so powerful that it in some ways doesn't matter because the consumer is going to, um, you know, jump through hoops for that art, that, that artist in order to do it, or has it been really hard to actually convince, um, fans, um, to actually, uh, subscribe and, 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 and buy some of these products from their artists? Well, let, let me answer it this way. So the first thing I'd say is like crypto has been such a disaster as an industry. Like it seems to have attracted the worst types from every corner of the globe. It is an amazing technology, but it has this magnet towards grifters and scam artists, um, which is really sad because it's a revolutionary technology. Um, and building in it has been really challenging because honestly, the brand of crypto, I think is 
is really, really bad. And, and, and the interesting thing that we found is that users understand ownership like really well. They understand, oh, I, if I buy this, I own it. What does that mean? Well, it means that I have it forever. I could gift it. I could resell it. You know, if this company vault went bust, I would still own my content. That to them, they understand. What they might not understand is, you know, uh, self-custody, MetaMask, you know, uh, like um, seed phrases. The point is that to date, crypto has been saying, hey, if you want to have ownership, you have to understand all that other stuff. And we think that's that's wrong. Like, like the analogy we use is a lot of, all of the crypto projects are all like, oh, yes, you have to understand that if you want to get the full experience. And our view is we can deliver the benefit of full ownership without having the user to even know that it's being built on crypto, but that we can sort of show them, look, you have ownership. This media is stored separately from Vault. If Vault were to go away, you could play it in these other players. Um, that's something that we are kind of you know, bringing users. So, yes, it's been really difficult and in fact you know a lot of our discussions we don't like somewhere in our discussion we'll say we're building this is built on crypto because we do build on that technology but we're delivering the benefit to the user we're not going to take them on a 12-month education course of understanding crypto because they don't need to understand it in order to get the benefit how um when you say you don't want consumers like to even um, not that they don't want to know that it's blockchain, but you, but you want it to be maybe like a seamless process. Like, do they have to do they have to have um, a Solana uh, currency in order to pay for transactions, or or can they do everything with like credit cards and and, and they can do everything. In fact, so we used to offer right now today we actually don't offer crypto as a payment choice. It's quite funny. The reason is that we we used to offer. Um, you could pay in credit card, PayPal, in-app, or in crypto. After we sold about 4,000, we didn't have a single purchase in crypto. And so we realized that our audience were not buying in crypto. So we actually removed that as a payment option. So we, you know, everyone is consuming this product, having the full experience without ever touching crypto. How also, like, um, and I know that you're... Um, this is very like early still um, in your journey. And of course, you know, early just in, in, in crypto um, as well, just overall as an industry. But let's say an artist, for example, produces 500 exclusive um, um, uh, pieces of like, or, or, or one content, but, but, but only 500 people can actually buy that content. Right. Um, and then, and you think you, you purchase it and you're like, oh my gosh, like I am one of 500. I actually think this artist as well. Like I love this artist. It's a maybe small artist because I know that you're attracting small artists, but I think maybe in a 10, 20, a 10 years, 20 years, this is going to be really worth something. Right. But then, and I guess there's no way for you to really know the answer to this, but, um, let's say in five or 10 years that artist then does another release of that exact same product that maybe produces 500. So it becomes then less valuable to the people that, um, uh, that originally purchased. How do you think about like those types of, um, things happening? So in that instance, you just got rugged by an artist that you love. (laughs) Well, how do you deal with that? So, um, I know that's also like, by the way, like not your problem. It's really like the artist problem, right? Like I'm just, I'm just wondering like how you think about, cause yeah. yeah, How do you deal with it? 
And so the thing I'd say is that it, it, it is because the thing is that this is about the artist's relationship with their fans. And I think because of that, we've not seen that to be too big an issue. And I don't think it will be because that's the artist devaluing their own art. And I just don't think, I don't think they'll want to do that to their fans. The, the other thing to note is in our format, because it's built on crypto, the artist gets, um, they get around uh, 75% of the initial um, sale price, but they also get 60, uh, 68% of the resale value of it every time that that uh, piece is resold. So they do get recurring residuals from the resale of that product if it were to go up in value. If they were to, it's in effect, they're in effect uh, debasing their currency, then the value of that would drop. And so it's kind of not in their economic interest. Now, it's really up to the artist to decide how they deal with their media. Uh, we would certainly never advise them to like take the same media and do it on a cheaper version. Um, but I think just our, our experience so far, and I, I think our expectation is that this may be a sort of theoretical problem that we only see a small number of instances of in the future because it's kind of not in their artistic interest or even to some extent their financial interest as well. No, that's also interesting how still the artist, um, when it actually gets uh, changes hands, even though they've they've sold this product, they would actually still be getting some type of um, uh, be able to still monetize that product as well. How how much does Volt take out of a transaction, or like what's like the monetization model with Volt? We we take about twenty five percent. Sort of varies by artist and project, but it's about twenty five percent. About twenty five percent. Okay, got it. And how does that compare with like? You know, because obviously there's just so many other, I guess, companies or ways um, uh, that people are kind of thinking about um, music entities. What do you think that kind of is separating Vault from kind of the rest of the gang? Yeah, well, so music is fairly standard, like iTunes uh, and Spotify take about 30%. Um, there's, and even with that, Spotify is not profitable. So it's not like, you know, they're they're necessarily raking it in. They're not. Um, in terms of, uh, the alternatives to for the artists today, and, and and also sorry to interrupt you, but I think one of the beauties about Vault, how I understand it, which is different to Spotify, is of course you know Spotify has to pay for the rights, um, has to pay obviously for uh, 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 the streams um, uh, of of the. Oh, the, the cost, the infrastructure. Which, oh, no, no. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, the, the publishing. publishing. Oh, the publishing side. We're the same. So we're you know this is a format. Oh, okay. The public, you know, like so. Okay. Nearly everybody we've worked with is a singer-songwriter, so they also own the publishing rights. Um, but, you know, this is a format of music, and so we we abide by the same laws that, that Spotify. It's a different format, and it's more like a download. But, yes, it's... Yeah, no, sorry. What I'm saying is that, um, that for every stream, obviously... Uh, Spotify is going to have to pay publishing rights to to the artist, but on, but in your case, um, since it really it, it, it's at least while I understand it, it's a transaction between that artist on the exclusive content with. Um, well, actually, that's a good question. Do uh, since they? Oh yes. Well, I guess yeah. E e even though they purchase it, they still have to pay uh, every time they stream that exclusive content. It's no, it's actually more technically, it's more like a download, and so it's. More of on, but when it's 70 or 25% goes us, the other 75 is going to the rights holders. Now, if it's a singer songwriter who's independent, that's all them. If they're doing a cover and there's a publisher involved, then there's a split going to the publisher. 
Um, and those all depend, you know, on, you know, who they are, et cetera. Okay. No, no, no. That's, that's, that's really helpful. But in terms of what you ask us about the alternatives, um, there, so the first thing to say is that this format is not competitive with Spotify. There isn't a single user that buys us that says, oh, I'm, I don't need Spotify anymore. It, it, these are super fans of music. Um, in terms of other things that are built on crypto, like we're just very different in that I think we're the only one that aspires to be a music format as opposed to being, there's a lot of sort of music NFT platforms where you can create a hundred NFTs that maybe have the song connected to it and the fans can buy it because they want some connection with that artist. Um, and, there, and there's a bunch of those platforms out there. There's also ones that you can connect the NFT to royalties of the song. And, and I own some Royal is one of the, you know, the best known, but another block is another one. Again, it's not a music format. I think it's interesting. It's, I don't think it's as mass market as what we're doing, um, but that that's probably something else that's also in the market. No, t- totally understand how you're not competitive to Spotify or Apple or um, or any of that, since these are kind of ex- exclusive experiences that um, that kind of super fans um, that that, that uh, uh, super fans have, um, uh, can obviously purchase. How you know, looking back to Fanduel and you, that, I mean, Fanduel, it seemed like grew really, really quickly in a very short amount of time. Um, how, with your experience founding and leading FanDuel, what were some of the learnings when it came when it came to growth that you're instilling when it comes to Vault? Mm-hmm. I think the first one, uh, we learned this very early on at FanDuel, was getting the product right um, and not trying to scale when you don't have that clear product market fit. Um, uh, and we spent a lot of time at Vault making sure we're getting it right, and we still feel that we are still making a lot of adjustments. Um, once you have it right, then you're looking for your scalable acquisition channels. And for for FanDuel, you know, it was a user lifetime value was very high, and so it was it was a paid acquisition model. Like if users were worth maybe like five hundred dollars on average, and so we were aspiring, we were getting user acquisition about $50. And so we were paying them back in the first year. And then after that, everything was profit. Um, with Vault, um, it's the acquisition side is more around on the, the artist side. And, and there we were just learning from, yeah, it's about building a product that they love that they can engage with quickly. You know, that, that's kind of like a similar to FanDuel, which is build a product that people love. Start with that. Then it's about reaching, finding the people that love it and, and and getting more of those. Do you ever find, because artists maybe want to do, you know, a lot of things. There's And I'm, I'm sure they get a lot of of, of opportunities that, that get thrown in front of them. And they might say yes to um, uh, to quite a few of them, but then might not actually maybe uh, be as engaged on some of them. So when you kind of sign up an artist, what's that kind of part, like partnership like? Um, and... How do you kind of make sure that hey, even though you're signed up, like how, like why you should actually care about this in the first place? Yeah, we we certainly find in that process that some artists just really engage with the format, and you know from day one they are, um, you know that they that they get it, and you know and, and you know when we and you find early in the process the artist talking about oh my fans would love this and what they really want is that we're like okay they totally get it they, they understand what they're trying to do um so that's something that's really important um we work with them 
very closely on, and to some extent, we kind of just script the messaging. We say, look, this is what we know works. Like, you know, there's a lot of things you could say and you could get it totally wrong. We actually learned it from one of our artists who actually just nailed it. He just knew exactly how to pitch it. And it was actually Jordan Hart. Um, and we just really used what he did. And we just sent every artist and said, do what he did. <laughs> like, th this is how to explain this to your audience and why they would buy it, why they would want to own it. And so that's been really, really useful. No, that's, um, so I guess it's really kind of like walking them through and maybe seeing like the various use cases of what you can actually do. And as well as I'm sure showing some, some data points around what type of content works, what's not. Um, I know, and I, and I know I keep saying this, you're very, very early into uh, your journey at Vault, but do you see also other products or other types of experiences beyond, you know, music content that, that Vault will, um, uh, will also uh, be responsible for in terms of the actual transaction happening. Yeah, so uh, Vault itself is a multimedia format. Uh, we support pictures, video, text. Uh, we have artists who put their stems in there so that their fans can download and play with the stems. Um, we've had artists use it for ticketing. So you book by a new artist by the EP. And then as part of that, there's a QR code that gets into their first concert. Um, that's pretty cool. Um, we've seen, and we've started to do a lot more of live recordings. And so the artist can actually sell it at their event. And 24 or 48 hours later, the fans get notification to say, hey, your live recording is available. So that concert that you went to last night, suddenly you can listen to it again. You can listen forever. That's pretty cool. So we're seeing a lot of people... Um, uh, you know, do different things with the media within it. I will say, though, we do keep coming back to the music. We keep coming back to, and, and as we think about the product is like, the music should still be score, core. It should be still a core experience about listening to music and, and, and experiencing that experience that we need to keep designing around. It's great that we package it with these other things, but we've always got to like focus on that core music listening experience. Yeah, I mean, I I really love that use case of maybe recording every show on the tour, and then you actually being able to you know buy the show that you actually went to, um, uh, because you know, and it's almost capitalizing you know on uh, um, on the abundance, which of course you know the, the digital world um, has created, but also like also kind of knocking out that, okay, we also do a show. Let's capitalize on the show because we can just create content out of the show and then and then kind of sell it to our fans. Um, and which is that, that you couldn't really do that in the non, um, you know, internet world because it was so costly to put out like a new album every single time. So um, uh, so I think that, that that's actually a super, super interesting um, uh, use case of it. What's maybe one um, one book that's inspired you personally and one book that's inspired you professionally? I'd say professionally as an entrepreneur, uh, Ben Horowitz of Andreessen Horowitz has got three books. I think they are sort of three of the best that uh, like hard thing about hard things. Uh, what you do is what you are. I can't remember the name of the third one. Uh, those are exceptional. Like there's few books I think that describe what it's like to be as an entrepreneur and, and the challenges and and some advice for entrepreneurs as, as well as those books um, about building company culture. Um, so I think th those are the ones that I always recommend. Personally, I try and not read too much stuff that 
I try to read for enjoyment rather than for, you know, uh, for, yeah, business. Like the most recent book that I read that I loved and a surprise I'd never read it before was High Fidelity uh, by Nick Hornby. And if you're like, if, if you love music and you haven't read that book, you're definitely letting yourself down. It, it's just, it's an incredible book. Um, uh, I would say it inspired me, but it's an incredibly good book to read. Cool. That's awesome. Really excited to to add um you're the first one that's mentioned high fidelity on this show so we'll add that um my final question nigel what's um since of course you know you're um you're a serial entrepreneur um and have had you know so much success how what's what's one piece of advice that you might have for anyone who's who's building currently uh, it's usually the piece of advice i give to people before they start which is do they really want to do it <laughs> Because it's a lot harder, and, and a lot. I, I remember, you know, someone actually it was Paul Graham described. It, he said it's a lot harder than people understand because you don't get any rewards for effort. Like you have to commit like a hundred percent, but there's no recognition that like yeah you did well. Like the customer doesn't say like I respect you've done a ton of hard work, and so we're you know you're you're going to get a promotion anyhow. Um, it's the one place where you can do an amazing amount of hard work and get no rewards, which can be very discouraging. Um, so that's usually what I ask people before they want to do it. I say, do they really want to do it? Um, once they're in it, like I, I usually am just like, you know, I, I usually like, you know, it's usually just sort of recognizing that it's, it's really, really hard. Um, and that, most changes, in fact, something I was chatting to some of our team about was successes like Fandale came from trying thousands and thousands of little things and finding the small number of things that worked and scaling them. Um, it didn't come from, oh, there was this amazing insight and, you know, then it worked. Like the funniest story about Fandale we heard was like this overnight success story or like that it, we caught lightning in a bottle as if it was like one thing. And it was like, yeah, we started in 2009. It was only by 2015, like six years later, that people start to say, wow, you know, this thing's like an overnight success story. So like it was six years of really, really hard work day in, day out. A lot of times thinking it was never going to work. Um, so it, in a lot of ways, it's a grind. It, it looks very different from the inside than it might look from the outside. And, and so that's... That's probably the, and usually when I chat to entrepreneurs and sort of share that, because normally you ask an entrepreneur, how's it going? You say, it's going great. And then, and you say, oh, that's, and then, and then you kind of like go, well, it's not going great for me. And you talk through some of the challenges and then they go, yeah, it's not going great for me either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Even in a company that grew as fast as Fandel, it was, I would say most days were not good days, right? Like, or there were not days that we felt everything was going great. Most days, things are either on fire or falling apart or just not going as well as we thought they would do. Do you have a a framework per se, or um, or when you actually think about new ideas that could be interesting to start and kind of then take the jump in order to commit? Um, like, how do you how do you almost like think about like what ideas could be interesting businesses and that and and, and that actually you want to start them? I think the sec- one of the secrets to good ideas is is a lot of ideas, including a lot of bad ideas, and that's what I kind of encourage in our team, even within the company, of like, what do we do? Uh, let's have a lot of ideas. Because if you only have a small number of ideas, you feel more pressure to do them rather than evaluate them. If it's like either we do this or we don't do anything, then maybe it's better to do this. But if we have like 
10 or 20 or 30, then we can start to think which is the best. Um, I think that's the sort of the first part. The other one is I always try and focus on what is the smallest, the easiest way we can test an idea. Like we can test it, is it work? Or, you know, in fact, there was a feature we were, we were thinking about today and we we're like, well, could we do that with a Google form? Because Google Forms are really easy. We don't need any engineering effort. Because a lot of ideas, you know, once you like, you know, they don't survive contact with the enemy, which is the customer. Customer sees it, goes, I don't want that. <laughs> and you're like, oh, okay, sounded great, you know, in my head. But, you know, now I realize the customers don't want it. That, that would be the second part. No, I... I like that, um, especially the part about um, having lots and lots of ideas. Don't worry if they're bad or good. Um, and then you can kind of di- dissect them and then feel if they're actually bad or good. And sometimes, you know, the worst idea actually turns out, well, actually, maybe there's a most opportunity here. So, yeah. Nigel, thank you so much for your time. This was a lot of fun. No problem. It wasn't it. Thank you. And there you have it. It was a pleasure chatting with Nigel. Nigel, thanks again so much for coming on the pod. Gabriel, thank you for joining me today. How are you? Yeah, really great. Uh, thanks for having me, Mike. No, it's a really appreciate it. So, how also should um, one think about which platform uh, to choose when it comes to running their portfolio? Because, for example, like we saw, like Assure go down last year, um, and I know that investors that I talked to were like very, very nervous of even like new platforms that are that are starting because because that kind of had. A, a bit of a chain reaction. Um, how how is uh, Vobin? Why is Vobin like pretty well positioned? Do, do you think? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I think you know, based on the current market, counterparty risk is very real. Uh, even with SVB, uh, you know, uh, in, in in the recent days. So yeah, being very mindful of you know who you're working with, especially with investments. Uh, that's going to be held for a long period of time is very important. Uh, very unfortunate scenario with Assure where they went under and they were one of the leading, um, you know, SPV providers uh, in the market. Um, I would say, you know, how we differentiate ourselves and, you know, how we provide comfort is, you know, we're a Carter company and Carter has multiple different revenue streams from equity management, venture capital, total compensation, as well as card of liquidity. So it's not purely, you know, the SPV and VC fund model um, that they're relying on. It's a holistic package of products that they have. They're extremely well capitalized uh, from that side as well. Um, and so, yeah, um, with the backing of Carta, you know, we do have, you know, uh, resources from a large organization who's been around for 10 plus years uh, to provide additional comfort to, you know, the long term investments that we structure uh, through our product. That's awesome. That's great. And and how um, how can you sign up to Voben if this is something that you're um, that you might be interested in, in, in doing or even getting started um, if it's like your first time? Um, experiencing any of this and just interested in investing? Yeah, definitely. Uh, you can definitely check us out on our website, www.vobon.io. Uh, alternatively, you know, feel free to reach out to me. My name's gabriel.chin at vobon.io. Um, and, you know, happy to kind of walk you through the platform. Um, it's great. You know, there's a lot of people who are starting their angel investing journey and want to, you know, share the, share their deal flow with their own network. So it could be a small group of friends uh, who, you know, want to get into angel investing. It could be a large angel syndicate um, or angel network. Uh, yeah, we're happy to accommodate uh, 
the various angel investors. Again, if you're enjoying the show, I highly recommend subscribing to the Consumer VC newsletter at theconsumervc.com, where you'll receive all new episodes straight to your inbox and a weekly recap of all the deals that are happening. Thanks for listening.